This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Patrick Georgioff, and this is part two of the Big T Trauma Series, Pitfalls in Trauma. So the Big T Trauma Series offers clinically oriented material that focuses on how best to care for traumatically injured and critically ill patients. And the information presented in this podcast is designed for surgical trainees, but it really is appropriate for anyone who loves trauma as much as we do, or maybe not even as much as we do. Uh, it, this includes medical students, APPs, all of our nursing colleagues, et cetera. And today I'm joined again by none other than Dr. Brian Cotton, professor of surgery and fellowship director uh, at UT Houston, a good friend, former co-fellow, Dr. Teddy Puzio, a trauma surgeon at UT Houston, and Dr. Chrislyn Mick, currently a second year fellow in UT Houston as well. So hi guys. Thanks, Patrick. We are pumped to be here. All right. So Teddy, uh, we covered pitfalls one through five in the first episode. Why don't you get us started with trauma pitfall number six? All right, great. So uh, you're following a 68-year-old male who is now post-injury day five from a motorcycle crash that resulted in, you know, polytrauma, Uh, multiple left rib fractures, a clavicle, grade three spleen lack without active extrav or significant hemoperitoneum, and he also had a left femur fracture. So he was doing fine up until this morning um, when he developed acute onset of left upper quadrant pain and hypotension. Uh, Chrislyn, you're called to evaluate him and you notice that he's white as a sheet. What do you, what do you think is going on? I guess it could be a number of things, but with his presentation, I'm particularly worried about a delayed rupture of his spleen. Yeah. So it's bleeding until proven otherwise. So the, this patient gets a cortis central line. You start him on MTP and then what? Uh, straight to the OR as quickly as possible to do an X-lap and take that spleen out. Yep, exactly. So he was found to have massive hemoperitoneum and a ruptured spleen, but you know he had a grade three when he came in. So where where's the pitfall? Yeah, so the pitfall here relates to splenic laceration management, and, it, and it's actually a tricky one. So this patient had a grade three splenic injury, and grade three splenic injuries are kind of straddling the fence. I think we've all seen it. You've seen a grade three that makes you go, meh not too exciting. You've seen a grade three going, ah, that's kind of ugly. And, uh, you know, that should pique your interest. And especially in patients who are older, um, uh, they have maybe a blood thinners, folks who have a higher rate of non-interventional treatment failure. And we should note that this patient was also washed closely uh, with with a quality protocol that included serial CBCs and uh, serial abdominal exams for the first 24 hours post-injury. And that went fine. So, how could this have been uh, prevented? And Teddy, on re-review of the CT scan, I have to ask you, were there any worrisome features that kind of came along with that grade three injury you mentioned? Well, funny you should ask. There actually were. They read possible pseudoaneurysm. Right. So, so it's important to remember that the AAST updated their splenic injury grading system in 2018. So really not that long ago. 
And the new scoring system states that, quote, any injury in the presence of a splenic vascular injury or active bleeding confined within a splenic capsule is actually a grade four injury. Yeah, looking at this one again, this is a, this is, again, it depends on your tolerance for complications and bad stuff happening. Uh, literature wise, supporting this patient, this patient comes in initially. If they're stable, even if they're older, they're stable, you're going to take them and you're going to not op manage them, most likely. But you're probably, and I would advocate doing interventional radiology for possible immobilization if they confirm on, on, on their angio that this really is a pseudoaneurysm. Then you got to ask again, if you got a little more convincing CT initially, if this is a pseudoaneurysm that's up the primary vessel, that's going to require a complete embolization and non-selective embolization. I might make the argument, again, I know that this is going to be like blasphemy for a lot of people out there, but I might make the argument that you just do a splenectomy because an absolute non-selective embolization is giving someone an acute sickle cell crisis equivalent. They're going to hurt like hell. The spleen in a lot of these cases is going to die off, become necrotic. It's going to get air gas battered. They're going to get a fever and a white cap, and you're going to freak out, think it's an abscess, and you'll take the thing out. It'll probably be sterile necrosis, but it will feel a lot better outside the body and in a bucket. However, book answer, this patient's stable with a pseudoaneurysm. They're going to radiology for for uh, possible embolization based on angio. So, so Dr. Cotton, so what, what about when you look at the scan, uh, they are rock solid, stable, no extrav. When do you consider repeating the CT scan? Uh, you know, 72 hours, say post-injury for quote unquote high risk patients. Maybe there's some other stuff you see going right. on. What, what, what triggers you to do yeah. that? You know, there's no magic number because I've seen delayed failures of non-op management in 24 hours. I've seen it be, you know, two weeks, three weeks out. So there's no magic number on that. If I didn't have a confirmation, so if I have an injury that I'm thinking this is a possible pseudoaneurysm, it's going to need embolization, most likely, uh, maybe surgery, uh, and it's a possible, and I'm on the fence, I'll probably repeat that in 12 to 24 hours. If it was done in an outside hospital, and that maybe maybe the quality is not the same as what our guys and girls are used to interpreting, and or IR wants to look at it, then I'll probably repeat it even sooner. But I might just go 24 hours on this one. If it, if they're hedging on the diagnosis, if it's a diagnosis and they don't want to do anything about it, that's another story. But if they're hedging on the diagnosis, I want to know sooner than later on something that's going to rupture and, again, lead to this guy that Chrysalin's going to have to bail out on the floor that's sick as hell, getting massive and getting whisked off to the operating room, which, again, an older guy crashing like down the floor doesn't tolerate that like a younger person might. Yeah, I mean, I think you made a good point without even making it. It's like a lot of, <laughs> some of this is a little bit of, uh, you know, curbside interventional radiology, right? If, if the radiologist reads this CT and they hedge, why don't you have another radiologist who is an interventionalist take a look at it? And right. we, we do that a lot. Right. Like, yeah, hey, we'll, we'll bump it to the IR guys, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you covered a lot of good points here. And this kind of wraps up pitfall number six of so the missed splenic pseudoaneurysm. Great. All right. Let's go on to pitfall seven. So this is a 24-year-old male who is the victim of a drive-by shooting. They come in with a GSW to the left thigh and they have a tourniquet in place. Uh, the patient's diaphoretic. They're clammy, tachycardic, hypotensive. They've clearly lost a bunch of blood. So Chrysalin, you start MPP and you look for hard signs of vascular injury. 
what are the hard signs and why they're important? Let's hear them again. So the hard signs of vascular injury include pulsatile bleeding, uh, arterial thrill by palpation, if you hear a brewy, rapidly expanding hematoma, uh, and finally a cold leg with no pulses or Doppler signal. All important because that means you caught a case. Caught yeah. a case. It means the patient definitely needs an operation. All right. So you take this tourniquet down and you got frank arterial bleeding. There's blood squirting all over the trauma bay. You quickly put it back up, get it, grab a quick x-ray. It shows uh, uh, to looking for a fracture and you don't see any fracture. Uh, and so you go off to the OR. Right. I get, I get getting those pre-op x-rays important. You get a fracture pattern. I'm thinking, do I need to get, you know, again, you know, hand involved or ortho involved if there's something concomitant? Because that's going to help decide and set up my staging of what I'm going to be doing. Am I getting in there and doing a repair or am I going to be doing a couple other little things? So getting getting x-rays, also looking for retained foreign bodies because this is a gunshot wound, but I've seen stab wounds where I've got the same injury pattern. I'm like, oh, I got a brachial artery injury. I'm going upstairs. Oh, and lo and behold, the tip of the knife is broken off in the, in the mid-shaft of the humerus and whoops, we may you know get hurt going in there. So always get a quick shot x-ray, not just for, for fractures, but also for foreign bodies. Great. So, so, so this patient gets to the OR and Chrislin does a beautiful job following the principles of vascular surgery. Uh, there's proximal control obtained, distal control obtained. We find that transection. Uh, it's of the SFA and SFV. Uh, the vein gets ligated. And uh, for the arterial injury, you do some fogarty thrombectomies. You get good flow, heparinize the patient, harvest some contralateral saphenous vein and perform a reverse saphenous vein interposition graft. At the end of the case, you have palpable DP and PT pulses. You have a beautiful completion angiogram confirming distal flow, high fives all around. The guy gets an aspirin uh, before the end of the case and gets to the PACU. Uh, when you see him in the morning though, uh, you can no longer palpate a pulse, unfortunately. And you learn that the patient actually had worsening pain all night. And this was treated by escalating doses of narcotic by a rogue uh, off the map intern. Chrislin, what are you worried about here? So, I mean, everything about this to me screams compartment syndrome. Yes. So pitfall number seven is missed compartment syndrome. So, um, Chrislyn, why don't you go through the signs and symptoms of compartment syndrome? So, I mean, the classic thing that I remember is the, the five Ps. So pain, pallor, paresthesias, paralysis, and pulselessness. But really importantly, pulselessness is a really late sign. And so if you're waiting for this to happen, then you've already missed the boat. Um, the classic first sign or symptom of the lower extremity compartment syndrome is numbness in the first web space. Um, this is because the anterior compartment is the first developed compartment syndrome and it contains the deep peroneal nerve. You left out the important sixth thing, which is poikilothermia. Mm. Mm. <laughs> don't, for, don't forget it. That is some high <laughs> yield abscite info right there. I can actually still hear my attendings as a resident beating this into you, you know? So, um, Cotton, why don't you talk about why this, I mean, it sounds like Patrick described a, a pristine vascular trauma case. Oh, it was why beautiful. Did this, <laughs> how did this patient develop compartment syndrome? How do we do avoid this? Right. So there's a couple of things you can do to avoid this. One, and again, this, I'll give you the, the book answer, then I'll go on to some nuance kind of stuff. The book Is answer. Is there a striker needle in this answer? There's not a striker needle in this answer. The striker is not taking me out for dinner or anything like that. So they're not gonna get any rep time here. Um, so no, honestly, the book answer is this patient had a combined vein and artery injury. And in most cases, you're gonna ligate the vein and now you've disrupted at least a major emptying of that, of that lower extremity. 
and you've got a vascular injury. And as even as slick as you might think you are, there's some time involved in that. And so with the combination injury, your board answer is to assume that this is going to evolve into a compartment syndrome. And in fact, if you don't do it, uh, fasciotomies at the end of the case, they are going to give you a compartment syndrome overnight, just like Dr. Mick uh, just had to navigate here with Dr. Fusio. Um, uh, one, I will say a caveat here, at least professionally, that I've seen in the last few years, especially when there's a concomitant fracture, it seems we've seen compartment syndromes even less. And here's why I think that is, is because when we see this, and this again, this gets back to getting x-rays of fracture pattern, we will shunt immediately. We'll get in there, we'll identify it, thrombectomies, and then heparinize, put a shunt in, and then let ortho just do their thing. Ortho does their thing, we come back in, we harvest vein uh, or get graft, and then we take the shunt out and then, and then do our interposition. And there's very little ischemic time. And I think on the ones without fractures, honestly, over the last few years here, I think probably those are more likely to get it because we get in, we fix the vein, get control of the artery, and we fix the artery. We don't do a shunt in the ones where we're just a solo case. But when it's a combined ortho and vascular, I think we're more likely to do that. So that might be one of those that's a caveat. It's still not the answer for your boards, but it is the it is the it is an answer that we've seen grow over time here, where we shut a lot of people and get very aggressive with it, and our compartment syndromes are very very low. Yeah, and so so classic teaching is is six hours of ischemia, right? You have combined injury that can change. It may depend on how hypotensive that patient is. They're hypotensive. This guy was this guy was uh, real hypotensive. He lost a lot of blood, um, and and if they're hypotensive for a long period of time, that may change your calculus as well. You can also feel the patient's compartments on the table. If they don't feel good on the table in the OR, go ahead and open them up. Don't 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 second guess. Right. No. So so and again, it gets back to my my probably my biggest mentor in residency, Mike Metzler, would say if you're thinking about it, Brian, you should be doing it, Brian. I I, I was told fasciotomies are like the Nike slogan. Just do it. You know, <laughs> if you think about it. Just do it. If there again, if there's something in the back of your head creeping, if your rectal manometry is up, just do it. Whatever, no. whatever it is, fasciotomies or what happened. Yeah, it, it, we're talking. We're talking about two incision, four compartment, so big incisions, yes. not skimping on the skin incision, and you're opening up the fascia along the entire length of Don't each of four compartments. Blindly push those goddamn mets down the leg and open up the fascia. Do a real damn incision and open the whole thing up. You're not saving anybody. And I've taken so many patients back here and other places that get compartment syndrome or recurrent because it wasn't addressed appropriately. Do yeah. the real incision. We're tiptoeing on this trigger, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> tiptoeing. I don't know how much they're tiptoeing, but <laughs> it's like that line from, uh, from the Avengers. That's my secret. I'm always angry. <laughs> so, so I would add also very, very, very important to this case is communication. Okay. Especially if you're rocking the 12 hour shifts. So when you sign this patient out in the morning after a long case, it is critical that you share your concern about this patient with the oncoming team, that you demand hourly neurovascular checks because you tell them, you know, you write it, you tell them, you scream, this patient is a high risk for compartment syndrome. You don't want it. You know, you coming back for your night shift at 5 PM and they're going, Oh, you know, we just noticed this. That's all about communication, making clear your message before you go home and have a sleep. All right. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. 
Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Next case, a 24-year-old male presents hypotensive and tachycardic from complex pelvic fractures following a motor vehicle crash or motorcycle crash, I should say, actually. In a binder is placed. He's resuscitated with whole blood. And his vital signs improve. He's a responder. Uh, he's doing okay. He's taken to the CT scanner where he's found to have multiple rib fractures, a grade two liver laceration without extravasation, and complex pelvic and right lower extremity fractures. And there's active bleeding in the pelvis. So the patient's actually taken from the CT scanner to IR where he undergoes unilateral hypogastric embolization. And, and the bleeding stops. Ortho fixes him up two days later. And it's now post-injury day four from this polytrauma motorcycle accident. And the patient's actually starting to look look a little bit punky. Uh, And so a CT scan is obtained. And this shows no solid organ injury, but it does show a bunch of simple fluid in the abdomen. His H&H is stable, but he's got a worsening AKI. Chrislyn, take it away. What do we miss? Well, uh, you know, we stopped the bleeding, but uh, motorcycle crash, pelvic fractures, I think we probably missed a urogenital injury. Right. And then that's pitfall number eight is missed urogenital injury following blunt trauma. So the, the patient had an intra-abdominal bladder rupture that was not picked up on clinical exam or the initial CT imaging. And Teddy, what is your quote again? The eyes do not see what the mind does not know. The eyes do not see what the mind does not know. So Chris, we may have missed. You, you caught another case. That's right, Chris. <laughs> how would you, how would you fix this? So I would perform exploratory laparotomy, uh, thorough abdominal exploration, and a two-layer repair of the bladder with absorbable suture after ruling out involvement of the trigonin urethra. All right. So, um, you know, I think it'd be good to talk about injury patterns that are, you know, findings on exam that should make you worry about bladder and or urethral injuries. So, Cotton, you want to cover some of that? Yeah, I mean, the different pattern, again, it's very rare to get a uh, urethral injury from a blunt mechanism, but they do happen. And we've all had them, uh, but for the most part, this is this is a penetrating thing. Bladder and urethral are a different story. Uh, starting from the get go, when they come in the door, uh, I'm worried about somebody that's got gross external trauma. Obviously, gunshot wounds down in the in the pelvis, in the thighs, anywhere in that area. It kind of gets back to the workup we talked about, you know, in a previous episode about missed rectal injuries. It's all of that same little window in that area. And so I get a little bit nervous of penetrating areas, injuries down there. Blunt mechanisms, I'm worried about pelvic fractures down that area. I'm worried about gross lacerations to the scrotum, to the perineum, things like that. Uh, I'm worried about people with blood at the knees or if they go down and on just perineal uh, labial, labial exam, <laughs> that, they've got, um, that they've got blood from the vagina. So those are things that I'm obviously going to worry about. And again, anytime again, like we talked about any of those fracture patterns, uh, we, we're doing well. We finish our primary and secondary. We're back from CAT scan and we're putting the Foley in. And whoops, now the nurse has got gross blood. Those are other ones I'm starting to think about and get concerned about. If you do a 
fully before you go to CT, which is obviously a good a good way to work it up. Probably the normal way, but not necessarily the way of our people always how we work them up here. Then that's when you're going to pick it up, see that hematuria, and have a lot of information you can get on it. Uh, I still prefer uh, old school cystograms and urethrograms. That said, a seat a formal CT cystogram is a great way to work these patients up. Uh, and even when you don't do a formal one, there's some CT findings. It's like, whoops, I forgot to put a Foley in before I went to scan. But now my scan showing a little bit of thickened wall of that bladder that's just a little unusual. And oh, yeah, guess what? They had superior and inferior rami function. All those kind of things that you start clicking in your brain, get that again, that anal monometry up, and get you thinking about uh, a possible bladder injury. Urethral injuries, at least in males, are a little bit easier. Females, it's almost always uh, uh, bladder, not, not, not urethra, short, short urethra they have, but it's definitely something to think about. And then you got to you know, divide it up into external versus internal and how you're going to manage that in, in evaluating this patient. Uh, right. External can be managed for the most part, uh, at least initially, uh, with just a Foley catheter until maybe uh, until ortho goes in to do maybe a, a pelvic repair. And then they may be calling you because they've got urine coming into their field. So that's yeah. somebody you're going to need to repair. That's, that's the one uh, time. The hopefully, hopefully you'll repair it. But if you're in a place that doesn't allow you to repair it, then you're getting uh, your your college in urology to help uh, help with that. Right. So, so, uh, Chrislin, you know, CT scan gives you lots of information. Uh, you get a lot of that stuff that Dr. just mentioned, you can see those injuries pique your interest. Uh, but, uh, what's, how else do you need to work with these patients up, um, after CT scan? So let's talk specifically about retrograde urethrogram. Let's talk specifically about cystogram. How are these studies actually performed? Um, so sure, a retrograde urethrogram is performed by inserting a Foley a couple of centimeters into the urethra, partially inflating the balloon, and injecting 50 cc's of dilute contrast while the penis is stretched out obliquely in a plain film obtained. If there's no extravasation of that contrast, the catheter can be advanced, uh, but there, if there is extravasation, uh, the catheter should absolutely not be advanced and urology should be called promptly. Um, of note, anatomic differences... Um, Retrograde urethrograms are typically only performed in men. Uh, moving on to the retrograde cystogram, however, this can be performed with x-ray or CT scan. For this study, a Foley catheter is inserted. Around 400 cc's of dilute contrast is instilled into the bladder by gravity. Uh, and then the Foley's clamped and x-ray or CT images are obtained after. Awesome. <laughs> you know, the other thing to point out is the significance of hematuria, right? So hematuria, including gross and microscopic, which we would define as greater than or equal to three red blood cells per high card field, should prompt you to do a comprehensive workup. Right. It's a nice little tip. It's something to look out for on that uh, that, that dipstick urine, for instance. So that wrips up uh, uh, pitfall number eight. This is a missed urogenital injury following blunt trauma. Teddy, what do we have next? Sweet. All right. So next case, 75-year-old female restrained driver, high-speed MVC, positive loss of consciousness. She comes in, she's hemodynamically stable, undergoes pan-CT scans, uh, which reveal a you know, pretty benign injury pattern, non-displaced sternal fracture, an occult hemothorax, some rib fractures, and she gets admitted to the floor. Um, she's satting well on room air. Her IS is appropriate, um, and she, she does well. Um, on hospital day two, though, she now has a new oxygen requirement, and she tells you that she's short of breath. Um, you get a chest x-ray and now she has a new left-sided opacity. So Kristen, what's your differential on this, um, geriatric trauma patient? 
I think, you know, the, the highest thing for me would be a delayed hemothorax from the rib fractures. Certainly other diagnoses to consider could be pulmonary contusions. She could have aspirated. She could have a pneumonia or, or some atelectasis. Um, also something to consider, however rare, is a traumatic diaphragmatic hernia. Is there anything unique about her imaging? Well, yes, there is. You know, I, it's important to point out that you actually would look at the imaging yourself, right? We, we find it easier sometimes to just read of a report from the radiologist, but this is one of those things. Learn to, to look yourself. So when you look at her x-ray, you notice that it is irregular appearing and you think maybe there's some air fluid levels. What, what would you do next? Um, I would progress to a CT scan. Boom. CT scan uh, shows pitfall number nine, the missed diaphragm injury following blunt trauma. Chrislyn, we found you. We caught you in another case. Um, it's, it's rare, but you know it's important to remember that there are zebras out there, right? Not yeah. all are- and I think Dr. Cotton mentioned in our, in our last episode too, we talked early in this episode, maybe even talked about diaphragm injuries and, and CT scans. So Dr. Cotton, why, why is it, why are they often missed actually on these initial images, even for good high quality images? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and plug again, our, our, our the three F's about the way we learn because, you know, Crystal, no, Crystal laid out, I want, I want to be clear about this. Crystal laid out the book answers and the high percent answers, right? She went over, uh, they had a pulmonary contusion. She's an old lady, rib fracture, shoulder fracture. Oh, she's old, she aspirated. Maybe she came in with a pneumonia, we didn't pick up on it. Maybe it's just an atelectasis because she's in pain. But the first thing when you were describing it is, I thought diaphragm injury. And that's no BS. It's just because I've seen it in the elderly. I've seen this case evolve. And again, it goes back to what is the worst thing that can happen to this patient. One of my old mentors uh, used to be here would say that. What is the absolute worst thing you can happen to this patient? So that came to my forefront, even though if you're taking an abside, if you're taking a board exam, it's not the number one answer. It still is one of those things that having lived through and having seen that 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 third F, that that foul up, that F up, that's one that kind of comes to the forefront when I start thinking about things. And that's why uh, it's important to look at these scans. So Ted had touched on it, looked through the scans. Uh, I suspect that she's done like what I talked about earlier. I missed it looking at just the the the, the axial images. After I had a missed injury, I started looking at coronals every single time. And I don't know that I've had one that I've missed since then. I know it very still could happen in my future, but I don't know that I've had one missing. I think you've got to look at all the images of the not just the axial. I think you've got to look at those sagittals and, and definitely even the coronals on this. And you got to think about just how thin that diaphragm is and how easy it is to miss, especially if you've got, let me just lay it on even harder. Now you've got a little small hemothorax collecting in the base of the lung. Or you got a big full stomach because she just got back from Golden Corral and it's completely distended with whatever she laid herself out for dinner with. So <laughs> all those things right there that can really disturb that thin, thin diaphragm, especially in an elderly patient, that you can miss these injuries. Yeah. So CT scans are only at best 80% sensitive for blunt diaphragm rupture and, and certainly this left-sided uh, a, a weirdness or vagueness on the seat on the x-ray matters uh, because the liver often protects that right diaphragm from injury. So much more common to see left-sided right. injuries, high speed, blunt mechanism, uh, abdomen and chest um, uh, as well. So this is, it's fascinating. We were working, uh, writing this series up and um, I was talking with Teddy about it. It's amazing. Uh, out of these nine we've done so far, uh, we had three of these in a single night on call in Raleigh. Uh, so these are, these are phenomenal cases, super high yield. So yes, some of this is our zebras, but they are important, important things to keep your, uh, 
to, to, to know to look for. So uh, that completes pitfall number nine, missed diaphragm injury and blood trauma. So let's move on to pitfall number 10. A 32-year-old male comes in with a single GSW to the right chest. This is a juicy one. Um, he is actually hemodynamically stable, though. Um, he Not does bad. have diminished <laughs> breast sounds on the right. So you put a chest tube in on that right side, 500 cc's of blood comes out. It pretty much stops after that. Uh, you get a chest x-ray and it shows a bullet in the left lung apex. Remember, this is a right-sided uh, ballistic wound a bullet in the left lung apex. You get a cardiac fast. It's negative. You get a chest CT. And besides small bilateral hemopneumothoraces and a small amount of a pneumomediastinum, there's really no other injuries for this patient. So uh, he looks great. He gets admitted to the floor uh, for chest tube management. Uh, but unfortunately, Kristen, on day three, you get a call from the nurse, fever to 103.1, a real fever, uh, starting to get tachycardic and hypotensis. What happened here? So, I mean, transmediastinal gunshot wound, I would be very concerned that he is septic from a missed esophageal injury. Yes. Pitfall Can number 10. Yes. All right. Yes. Hold on. Everybody hold on. Listen. Termination to find anatomic injury. How the hell did that bullet get removed from that one side of the chest to the other side of the chest? It had to go through something. It very, very rarely does it magically traverse all those structures. It has. I've seen it myself. But it's uncommon. It had to go through something. Did it go through the spine? Did it go through the aorta? The goose? What did it go through? Yeah. So, Teddy, tell us, tell us why. What, what we screwed up, right? We got that CT scan. CT scans are amazing. It's the truth machine. High quality, good images. But what did we miss? I, well, it's important to know that even the truth machine lies, uh, and it lied to us. So, you know, a patient with a transmediastinal gunshot wound, the board answer, and really the clinical answer. Uh, as the standard of care for all these patients should get not just a CT scan, but should get a bronch, an EGD, uh, and a pericardial window if they have you know that trajectory. This is the only way to really rule out an injury to the big three structures in the mediastinum, so the heart, trachea, and the goose. Uh, you know, and and to rule to truly rule out an esophageal injury, it's more it requires more than just a CT and an EGD. So even if you do an EGD that's negative, the book answer, and I've seen this in clinical practice, is you have to get a water-soluble swallow study. And then if that's negative, a thin barium swallow. That gives you the highest sensitivity to rule out esophageal injury. And it's not just you know mediastinal esophageal injuries, but the esophagus stuff applies to, to neck injuries. So that's worth repeating, Teddy. You said normal CT scan. So you said, all right, I'm, I'm going to be a, a good trauma surgeon. I'm doing an EGD, normal EGD, but you're not done, no, right? Not you're a, not done. Not. You get that swallow study. But then you leave, then it leads to this pitfall number 10, this esophageal injury. So to definitively rule it out, you got to do swallow study. Yeah, and, and, it, and it matters. This patient is well on their way to being very, very sick. And mediastinitis is, it's it's extremely challenging to manage. And especially if there's a delaying diagnosis and that, esophageal injury sitting there in the mediastinum leaking a bunch of nasty stuff out of there. Uh, these patients often require esophageal diversion, transthoracic drainage, et cetera. Um, and, it, and it can be pretty nasty. So um, again, CT scan alone is not sufficient for transmediastinal gunshot, which that wraps up our 10 pitfalls in trauma. But before we sign off, we need to give big Mr. Big T himself uh, a moment here. We're going to give him his own case. All right, uh, Cotton, here we go. Awesome. The softball. Here we go. Here we go. This one's for you. This one's for you, buddy. All right. The patient is a 24 year old male who presents with a stab wound 
to the chest. He is altered and diaphoretic. His heart rate is 160 and blood pressure is 80 over 50. Oxygen saturation is 89% on a non-rebreather. And FAST exam shows a large pericardial tamponade. It cannot be missed. Now, the patient has started on a massive transfusion protocol. The OR is getting ready and the patient is almost ready to roll out. But before the wheels go up, saturation drops into the mid 80s, just down a little bit farther. And your ED colleagues are readily readying their intubation equipment. Why is this a terrible idea? I can't oh. wait to hear this. Hold on. <laughs> I'm, I'm holding myself. Go ahead. Here we go. Uh, yeah. We found another trigger. Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, I'm trying not to drop the F bomb on this one. Absolutely not. They are not touching this patient. This is one that is not going to be touched with an ET tube until they are prepped and draped. And I've heard the saw fire in the operating room and a knife is in my hand. They're not going to be innovated until then. In fact, I had a recent one, not penetrating actually, but a blunt uh, that we had that ex had exact same thing and literally on induction crashed and we already had the saw fire, you know, firing at that time. This patient is going to crash on you. You're going to lose all preload and everything you have as soon as you push that IV anesthetic and they go under. So you need to have them in the OR, prep and drape, and they get innovated by anesthesia in the OR with the surgeon, again, with a knife in his hand and a saw ready to go. Ketamine is a beautiful drug, right? Ketamine is a beautiful drug, but I'm not letting them give ketamine and innovating them downstairs either. Yeah. I'm so, so quick question. Uh, yeah. You know, this is a difficult scenario that uh, I think especially trainees and stuff have difficult time um, thinking about and contemplating because there's other things like pericardial windows and uh, um, uh, needle drainage and other temporizing procedures. And there's actually busy trauma centers that describe uh, uh, asp needle aspiration as well as a temporizing measure. What are, what are your thoughts on that? So I think, again, it goes back to Oscar's quote, we're only going to discuss it to condemn it. Uh, I think a lot of the centers that have done this, uh, as my old, again, my old mentor used to say that you got away with it, you still didn't do the right thing. Uh, and I think temporizing procedures are just that. If you have the skill set, if you are a surgeon, a surgical trainee, a fellow, you should be doing the surgical answer. If you're not skilled in that, then I understand you doing it paracardiocentesis to temporize things until the surgeon gets in from home or you can get them to the operating room. But if you have the skill set, you need to do the right thing, which is take them upstairs and do a sternotomy and take care of this patient and relieve their tamponade. The windows, the drains, the pericardiocentesis, those are things that do not address the problem. They are, as you said, they are temporary things and it's they're only gonna, only gonna recur. They're only gonna need to be redone. Uh, and anyone that published on it, and I've seen the data you're talking about, I know about it. We discussed it here as a journal club. Uh, it's a dangerous thing that they got away with because of their volume. They tried this out as a temporary thing to see if they could get through with it. And it was just that. It was something that they got away with. Uh, and not, But again, I would say it's still the wrong answer for any and all of these patients. Definitely not the oral board answer. And right? definitely nope. not the oral board answer. <laughs> That's a great case to discuss, lots to, lots to talk about there. But that wraps up this edition of the Big T Trauma Series, Pitfalls in Trauma. So remember, the eyes do not see what the mind does not know. So now you know. So until next time, dominate, dominate the day. Dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.